Well, good morning, church, and uh, good morning to everyone who's joining us online. I know the last couple of weeks we've, uh, we've had some, some difficulties, but I think it's, I think it's working uh, today. If not, someone will let me know, someone will let me know here soon. But uh, oh, it's good to be back. I was in Doketown last week. Some of you, uh, some of you might know, and uh, Pastor Dave Story was here, but it's good to be back with everyone. And this week... Uh, we're not going to be continuing through Matthew, but we will go back to Matthew soon. Uh, this week I want to cover two accounts from a, from a long passage. It's, it's actually almost eight chapters. Um, and we're not going to read them all, obviously, because they're eight chapters. But you can, and you should. When we're done here, you can go home and read Second Chronicles chapters 29 through 36. And after this morning, you'll be better equipped to understand exactly what they say, Second Chronicles 29 through 36. And I'll be pulling a, a few verses out of there, but again, it's eight chapters. You might have some trouble flipping around through them. Uh, so we're going to look at them with broad strokes today, getting a sense of, of what's happening there and, uh, and why the two events, the two main events in these chapters, are so important for us today. So before we begin, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would... Lord, be with the children's ministry today. I pray that you would bless the children and the teachers, give them wisdom and, uh, and help, as certainly they, they need it, bringing your word to young, impressionable ears. Lord, I pray that you would be with us here this morning for the hearing of your word, that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand we are dull, unfortunately so. But Lord, you are able to overcome grogginess or distractions or anything of the sort. And so we look to you for help this morning because we know there is help in nowhere else. And not only help us to understand, but help us to live in light of the truth that we know. So, Lord, it's to you we look today for help and for guidance. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me begin by telling a tale of two revivals. Both of them took place in very similar situations. It was a time when the people, the society, their leaders, everything was morally bankrupt. Sexual immorality was rampant. Child sacrifice was common. The courts were corrupt. Idolatry was widespread all throughout the land. In fact, every home almost had some kind of idol in it that the people would worship. You couldn't walk the streets without being bombarded with sin. And in all of it, in both cases... It was endorsed, funded, celebrated, and protected by not only the national government, but by the people as well. Perversity, immorality, corruption, idolatry, it received the widespread support of the nation. Not only that, but both of these revivals bear remarkable similarities in how they began. They were both born out of this, this hyper-pagan environment, but they both led to an increasing of the knowledge of God throughout the land. Both led many people to return to the temple, and both of these revivals were led by godly men. But one of them resulted in the nation being miraculously delivered from her enemies, and the other ended with the nation being overthrown and left completely desolate. And these are the revivals that took place in Judah. One under King Hezekiah, and the other under his great-grandson, King Josiah. Hezekiah came to the throne after the reign of wicked King Ahaz. And Ahaz, if you, if you don't know, he was a king who had sold the entire nation into idolatry by making them subjects of Assyria. You see, the people had sinned greatly in the kingdom of Israel and 
uh, in the kingdom of Judah, and they were attacked by the northern kingdoms of Syria and Israel, and 200,000 women and children had been captured and taken away as slaves. Well, Ahaz wasn't able to defeat the enemy he was facing, and he certainly was not willing uh, to turn to the Lord for help. And so to stop the invasion of the northern kingdom into his domain, he turned to the brutal and ruthless Assyrian empire for help. And they would come on one condition. Ahaz would make the nation of Judah a vassal under Assyria. Now what did that mean? Assyrian vassals were required to do three things. They were required to provide soldiers for the Assyrian army. They were required to pay tribute to the Assyrian king. And they were required to worship the Assyrian gods. Well, Ahaz agrees. And idolatry becomes entrenched in the nation with the threat of Assyrian destruction otherwise. This was the kingdom that King Hezekiah inherited. And Hezekiah... In faithfulness to the Lord, as soon as he becomes king, he rebels against his pagan overlord and leads the nation to return in worshiping the one true God. In the first month of his reign, and, and you can find his story, like I said, it starts in Second Chronicles 29, but in the very first month, the first thing he does, so he's king, he has the temple that had fallen into ruin repaired. He assembles all the priests. He tells them this is the direction that the nation now is going to go. He recognized the hardship that Judah was facing was because of the sin of the people and because of the abandoning of the Lord. And so he commanded the priests and said, you prepare because we are going to begin to worship God again. He has the temple repaired. He has the priesthood reinstated. He has the Levites restored. And within 16 days, everything that had polluted the temple... All of the idols, the wooden carvings, the pagan symbols, all of it had been taken outside of the city and burned up. In 16 days, the temple was totally cleansed and restored. Daily offerings resumed. Singing filled the courts. God was praised in Jerusalem again. And, I mean, you want to talk about things changing quickly in our day. In the nation of Judah, it went from utter paganism to the true worship of God in two weeks, two days. And to celebrate the restoration, the whole city came out uh, to worship God. When that first service was over, they had a service to consecrate the temple. When it was over, the king and all the people bowed themselves before the Lord in consecration. Then, we're told, the whole assembly willingly began to bring offerings to the temple and offerings to the altar. Thousands of goats and sheep and bulls, so many that the priests couldn't handle it. But the priests, uh, the priests weren't able to handle it, not because there were too few, but because the priests hadn't taken it seriously, hadn't consecrated themselves. And so the Levites, who had been more diligent, had to step in. And, uh, and we're told that the priests who were unable to help, they felt one thing. They were ashamed. They were ashamed that they hadn't gotten ready. That was part of this revival under Hezekiah. The leaders, the priests were overwhelmed with shame because they had not been ready to serve the Lord. And so they consecrated themselves and recommitted themselves to God. In verse 36 of 2 Chronicles 29, we're told that Hezekiah and all of the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people for the thing had come about suddenly. And so they set themselves to worship the Lord. They set themselves to honor Him. They set themselves to obey His Word. And then, totally unexpectedly, uh, as if rising out of, a, out of a sewer of immorality, God's people came walking out and were made clean by the thousands. And it didn't end here in Jerusalem. Hezekiah sent messengers throughout all of the land calling people to return to the Lord and come and celebrate His Passover. He sent them a message. He said, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. 
Don't be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to His sanctuary where He's consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that His anger might turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and He is merciful and He will not turn His face away from you if you return to Him. God never turns His face away from those who return to Him. Hezekiah knows this. And so he sends messengers even into the northern kingdom where he isn't even king. The nation that had invaded and captured 200,000 people, he sends the messengers there. And he calls them to come and worship. And when he does, we read, many mock him, but many others come. And they make the difficult journey to Jerusalem to consecrate themselves to God again. And they come from all over Judah and from all over Benjamin, but they come from Manasseh and Zebulun and Asher and the northern tribes. The kingdoms that used to be invading, now people are coming to worship. And, and they come and they assemble in Jerusalem. And when they do, they take every idol and every counterfeit altar they find. And we're told with one heart and one mind, they take them all outside the city and throw them into a giant burning garbage heap. They celebrate the Passover. And afterward, when it ends, the people are in such a rapture of delight that with gladness they decide to stay and continue to worship God for another seven days. The whole assembly rejoices, and the nobles rejoice, and the Levites rejoice, and the sojourners in the city rejoice, and they rejoice, and we read that never since the time of Solomon was there so much joy in the city of Jerusalem as when the city had re-consecrated itself to their Lord. At the end of chapter 30, we're told explicitly that God looking down at the joy in Jerusalem, hears their prayers from His holy habitation. And when they are finally dismissed from that Passover, all the people who were present, they go out and they broke down every pillar and they cut down all the wooden idols and they tore down all the high places and they smashed all the altars throughout Judah and throughout Benjamin and throughout Ephraim and through Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. And this religious fervor, it didn't go away in, in a few days. Hezekiah calls the people, and they uh, calls the people to continue to be faithful. He says, "Give the priests their portion. Don't just leave this place and forget about God. Continue." And then when the word gets out that the priests are in need, that the temple is in need, and that God commands the people to support it. They start to bring cattle. The people start to bring cattle and sheep and grain and produce in abundance. You say, well, how much did they bring? We're told they start piling up their offerings in front of the temple on the third month of the year in great heaps. And they don't stop coming until the seventh month of the year. Four months of continually heaping up treasures before the Lord. And then, after all of that incredible revival, you come to 2 Chronicles 32. One of the most shocking verses, I think, in the Bible. 2 Chronicles 32.1. And it says, And after these things, and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. But Hezekiah's rebellion did not go unnoticed. And the king of Assyria, after dealing with some internal difficulties, he set out to punish Judah. And so he sends his army and he besieges the city and he hurls insults at the people and he, he tries to frighten them into rejecting God, but the people hold fast. And Hezekiah finds Isaiah and together they go to the temple and begin to pray. And in the end, God sends the angel of death and 185,000 of their Assyrian enemies are annihilated in one day. The great enemy of the nation had been brought against them only to be humiliated and to be defeated. And for the rest of Hezekiah's reign, 
they enjoy peace and prosperity in the Lord. That's the first revival. The second one took place some 52 years later. Judah had fallen again under King Manasseh into the worst debauchery and the greatest idolatry that it ever had. Innocent blood was flowing in the streets. Sorcerers and magicians were the royal advisors. The temple was desecrated even worse than it had been. The Word of God had become void in the land. The law was outlawed. And everything that Hezekiah had done was undone by his own son so that the nation of Judah which ought to have been the shining light in the world at the time, became in its day the most wicked nation in the entire world. Manasseh's son Ammon continued this, but only for two years before he was assassinated by his own advisors. And then his son Josiah was crowned king at eight years old. But even as a boy, unlike his fathers, he set about seeking the Lord. Eight-year-old boy, and his first concern was to know God. So don't let anybody or you yourselves discourage children from seeking the Lord. Jesus wants the little children to come to Him, and so should we. Eight-year-old King Josiah set himself to seek the Lord. And when he was the age to really be king, which in that time was 20 years old, the first thing King Josiah does is begin a campaign of reform in the land. He is going to do what his great-grandfather Hezekiah did, and Josiah is going to cleanse the land from idols. He's going to lead them in returning to the Lord, and so that's what he does. He starts to send his soldiers to tear down all of the statues to Baal, to tear down the carved images, to tear down the cast images. He purges Jerusalem from idols, has them torn down, ground to dust, and then he orders the dust and ashes from all of these idols to be spread over the graves of the people who worship them. He's, he's desecrating everything that's unholy so that it can't be ever reused. And he didn't just stop in Jerusalem and Judah. He leaves the city, and we're told he goes throughout the land of the northern tribes again, destroying idols as he goes. You have to understand, he isn't even king there. But we read in Chapter 34, verse 6, And all the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon and as far as Naphtali, in all their ruins around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down the incense altars throughout all of the land of Israel. And then he returned to Judah, uh, Jerusalem. So he, he's going through the northern tribes, Josiah is with his soldiers with him. And, and if he sees a, a, a place that's torn down and in ruins overgrown with vines and grass, but there's a, an idol in there somewhere. He sends his men to go and tear it down. Having purged the land from idols, he begins to restore and repair the temple that had been abused and neglected for the last 50 years. He sends the priests to oversee the effort, but when they're doing this, they find a book. It was not uncommon in those days when enemy armies would invade or when times were looking very uh, desperate you would hide valuable possessions in the walls of your homes. And so as they're restoring the temple, uh, they, they, they find in the wall a scroll. And the scroll is the book, we're told, of the law. And this may be, at the time, the only Bible left in the kingdom. If you want an idea of how bad things were. And it's taken to the king... And it's read to King Josiah, and when he hears it, and when he realizes just how dire things have become and how sinful the nation has actually been, he tears his clothes and he starts to, to weep. He, he, sends a, he sends someone to go and find a prophet, and in this case a, a prophetess, to intercede for him, to give him the Lord's verdict. He says, look at what we've become. What does the Lord say? The answer comes back. Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster on this place and upon its inhabitants, and all of the curses that are written in, uh, that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all of the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. 
But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Regarding the words you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his word against this place and against its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. It's not a good report that King Josiah gets. And so what does he do? He remembers all of the times in the past when the nation was under the judgment of God. And he remembers how they responded, responded like Moses did. You remember the account of Moses. The nation had made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai and were worshiping the golden calf. And God tells Moses, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no, Lord, for your own name's sake, don't, don't do this. And he intercedes for them. And he goes down and he, he makes things right amongst the people. And God relents. Well, Josiah is doing something here. The same thing. He, he hears this terrible news. Judgment is coming. And so he goes to the temple to worship. He gathers all of the leading men of the nation. He leads them to the temple and he renews the covenant made with God. In verse 32 of chapter 35, it's the, the situation is described. It says this, verse 32 of 2 Chronicles 35. Then he made all of those who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all of the territories that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. And all his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. This first act of consecration, or the first thing they're going to do, is to have another Passover. And this time, the king provides tens of thousands of sheep and bulls and goats and rams to the people for them to offer. And they keep the Passover according to King Josiah. And the Passover was so great that the author writes, there has never been a Passover like it since the time of Samuel. So th this is the greatest Passover ever held by a king of Israel or Judah, and it comes during the reign of Josiah. That's the, the pinnacle of this revival. That's the high point, this magnificent Passover. And so how does Josiah's revival end? How does this great returning to the Lord come to its conclusion? King Josiah is killed in a battle that he didn't even have to fight. King after king replace him in rapid succession. They revert to idolatry. They are conquered by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is decimated. Its walls torn down. The temple is burned to the ground. And the people are sent away into exile. Two revivals. Two very similar stories with very different endings. The two endings couldn't be any more different. Now by this point, you're probably thinking, well, that was a nice history lesson, but what's the point? Why do those two revivals, what do they, uh, that happened thousands of years ago, what do they have to do with me today? Why, why should I be thinking about King Hezekiah and King Josiah? Well, they actually matter tremendously. Because this passage actually teaches us something about how we ought to live, especially when we find ourselves in a, in a pagan, godless, immoral, idolatrous world. Because those are the circumstances in which these revivals were born. State-sponsored paganism. Massive popular support. The Word of God nearly forgotten. Not much different than today. And the first thing it took, the first thing it took was courage. Courage born from faith and from seeking the Lord. You see this in Hezekiah and in Josiah. The world around them was very dark. 
The world around them was full of idolatry. And even though they were the kings, it still took courage to change the direction of the countries that they held. I mean, think of King Hezekiah. When he became king, he had to make a decision to continue being the subject to Assyria or to defy them in order to worship the Lord. It's a decision every Christian has to make. Are you going to be loyal to the spirit of the age or are you going to be loyal to the Lord no matter the cost? Well, it didn't even take Hezekiah a single day to make the decision. He was uncompromising in his commitment to God. From the very moment he took office, he set himself to serve the Lord no matter what would happen, knowing that it would invite the uh, armies of Assyria. And uh, Josiah, his own father was assassinated because the people didn't like the direction Amon was leading them. And for Josiah to, to change everything to obliterate the way of life that people in the land were enjoying, the, the sinful life that they were so mired in, he was taking a risk upon himself. And yet both kings met the challenge unwaveringly, and they met the challenge without a second thought. And that's how we must be, unwavering in our commitment to the Lord and to His Word. Christians have to have courage. In fact, in the book of Revelation, you may not have noticed this, but in the list of sins, I say sins, in the list of the kinds of people who are thrown into the lake of fire, the very first kind of person mentioned in the list are cowards. Well, what does courage look like for us today? Because it's, it's easy to hear that word courage and then our minds go in many different directions. How does God expect us to be courageous? How does a Christian face immorality and idolatry and corruption? Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For, this is important, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he says, put on the armor because that's where you're wrestling. Right? You're wrestling with rulers, authority, cosmic powers, the, 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 the kingdom of darkness spiritual forces of evil that are active in the present age. And how do we wrestle against them? How does Paul tell us to fight? Well, it begins by putting on the armor of God. That's how you prepare yourself to face it. You have the armor on. You are, now you're ready to march out. And when you are called to, what do you do? Listen to how Paul concludes. Verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly, there's a word for courage, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So how does Paul say that Christians are to combat rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over darkness and the spiritual forces of evil? Not in the same way that the world does. The world does it with worldly tactics. The world does it with flesh and blood tactics. We do it by praying at all times. Praying for one another and boldly proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. And and, and you have to do it this way. It's not going to work otherwise because... You're not going to win a spiritual battle with worldly weapons. It's impossible. You might as well be batting at the air trying to, trying to conquer it. The battle is being fought here in spiritual places. And that's where we have to be. Other things are useful. You understand? God uses means. He does. But never forget that the battle the Christian is engaged in is a spiritual battle and it requires spiritual weaponry. 
Second, it takes obedience. And I think that's obvious from the passage. The one thing that Hezekiah and Josiah did that really stands out is they exercised all of their God-given authority to bring themselves and as many others with them as they could into obedience to God's Word. They saw what the Bible said, though. They knew what it said in Josiah's case. And even Josiah, the little bit he knew, he did everything he could to obey it. He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, well, if we do this, uh, the Assyrians will, will come and do this. They didn't worry about what their subjects would say. They didn't worry about the logistics of it. They didn't worry about the financial cost of it. They were single-minded in their commitment to do the commands of God. I, I mean, Second Kings. How's this for, a, for an allocate given to a man? In Second Kings, it says of King Josiah that there was no king before or after him who turned to the Lord with all of his soul and heart and might. None. King Josiah sought the Lord even more wholeheartedly than King David. And so if you want to live as a Christian in a pagan, corrupt, godless, unjust land, you need to learn to obey all that Christ commands. All that He commands. Which is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, right? It's not go and make disciples, period. It's not the Great Commission. It's how it starts, but it ends with, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You don't do that, you don't do the Great Commission. You stop short of that, you stop short of what God has called you to. The job's left unfinished. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's adding them to the church. And teach them, right? Bring them to maturity. Teach them to live all of their lives ordered Christianly according to His Word. That's the Great Commission. And if you're a Christian, you not only need to be seeking to obey the Lord in every arena of your life, but you need to be seeking to advance and grow in your knowledge and devotion and obedience to those commands, not shrinking in those things. And what's frightening is, is I fear that for believers, the opposite is usually what happens. As time goes by, complacency sets in, and there's, there's no longer a sense of, I must bring everything in my life into subjection to the Word of God. And you can read commands in the Bible that, that you know you're not keeping and just gloss over them like they don't even matter. When was the last time you read the Word and you really thought something needs to change and set about to do it? Either a, an attitude that the Lord condemns or a good work that you need to grow in or a, a hobby that takes too much time or too much money. When was the last time you sought to be diligent in every arena and area and aspect of your life to be faithful to God? Maybe you used to be diligent in those things, and now it seems to slip by unnoticed, and you stop growing in Christ, and you become comfortable where you are. When that happens, listen, you are in a lot of trouble. Because the Christian life in a fallen world, it's like swimming in a river, but you're swimming upstream, and there's no banks there's no shores to escape to. And a mile downstream from where you are, there's a thousand foot waterfall waiting to launch you over the edge. And if you're a Christian, you cannot stop swimming. And you have to fight hard for every inch you gain because sometimes the water that's coming against you is flowing pretty fast. But if you stop, you're carried away over the falls. No, Christian, you have to press on and persevere and fight for holiness and fight for obedience and fight for maturity, not only in your life, but in your family and in your church. And you seek the Lord and you seek to be obedient to Him more now that you've been a Christian for one, two, five, ten years, and not less. You seek to bring your life more into conformity to the image of Christ. You can't do that unless you take the Word seriously. All of life is to be brought into subjection to the Word of God. 
It's what Hezekiah and Josiah sought to do. Change the nations in which they lived. You can add to this prayer. We must be prayerful. Hezekiah and Josiah, whenever they encountered a a specific challenge, a challenge above and beyond what they normally found themselves facing, right? Josiah discovering that the nation is, is, is under the wrath of God in a much more severe way than he ever could have imagined. Or Hezekiah with uh, an army of almost 200,000 camped uh, surrounding Jerusalem. What did they do? They sought the Lord. Hezekiah, when he was overwhelmed, went and found the prophet Isaiah and sought the Lord. Josiah did the same with Huldah. Now, we don't seek out prophets in our day to seek the Lord because we can go to Him ourselves. We can go to Him in prayer. And a very specific kind of prayer we can go to Him in. I want you to think about this for a second. You think, well, if I'm going to pray, what kind of prayer? Because you can give prayers of thanksgiving. You can give prayers of petition. I'm speaking specifically about prayers of intercession where you go and you pray to God, not for yourself, but for others. And not for your own needs, but for the nation. Think about this. The Lord Jesus right now is interceding for us. That's what He's doing. He is praying for His people before the Lord as our great High Priest. This informs us that one of the highest callings of a Christian is to intercessory prayer. Because when we pray for others and intercede on their behalf, we are praying most like Christ. We intercede for lost people who don't know their right hand from their left. We intercede for that, the, that the, the blanket of darkness over the land be lifted. And we pray that the church might be delivered from her present trials so that God may be worshipped more freely. But we have a responsibility as Christians for intercessory prayer, praying for those around us and for our leaders and for our nation. How much prayer do you lift up in intercession? Well, that's how we live in a fallen, godless world. We're courageous for Christ, not ashamed of the gospel. We pray and intercede strenuously, and we seek to obey the Lord in all things. And listen, this, living this way, it takes faith. Do you know why? Because when you think of courage and confronting the world around you and seeking a change, we generally don't think in terms of prayer, preaching, and obedience. We tend to think that that kind of attitude alone, that will only lead to more darkness, right? Darkness unopposed. But we can't forget that the meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. And that's why it takes faith. Because you look at the world around you, And it's real easy to say prayer, preaching, and obedience to God. That's good, but I don't see how in any way, shape, or form that's going to change anything. And it maybe doesn't look like it will, but we know that it does because it's those things that brings God's might to bear upon a people. It is those things that, that, that brings God down to change hearts and bring repentance. It's like the wife of uh, an unbelieving husband. You remember what Peter says? He says, he should be won without a word by the conduct of his wife. That doesn't make sense, does it? What makes sense is the wife must explain his bad behavior, correct him, and then argue with him until he at least comes to church. That sounds like it's going to work. Being submissive and having uh, good conduct sounds like she's just going to get walked all over. One crucial point is being forgotten. When the wife honors God by treating her husband that way, it brings God into the fight. And God knows how to deal with her husband. And when we, as Christians, when we deal with the world around us according to the Word, it doesn't look very powerful. And it doesn't look like it's going to change much. 
And in fact, it looks like Christians might end up as doormats, but it won't end that way because that is the kind of life that brings God into the fight and He is able to do far more than we could ever hope or dream or imagine. We are called to be faithful and leave the rest up to Him. And and just to be clear, so I'm not misunderstood here, sometimes faithfulness looks like writing your MP or even hiring lawyers. Just so I'm not misunderstood. There is a place for that kind of stuff in the Christian life. But all of it is secondary. And it pales in its power to actually change anything. Because victories in court or changes in policy, they don't do much to change the heart of a nation. Now maybe you've been wondering and scratching your heads like I did for a long time on why one of these revivals ended in deliverance and the other ended in destruction because that's how they ended. Hezekiah delivered miraculously. Josiah, nation destroyed. Josiah, dead. Well, the answer to why they ended differently is quite simple. In Josiah, in his account... One of the things you read over and over and over again is he did this and he did that and he provided this and he provided that and he made the people do this and he made the people do that. And and, and out of the whole nation, though the law ordered the people to honor God, though Sabbath rest was mandatory and the temple was funded and running at full capacity, and the nation outwardly, it looked to be spiritually revived. It all rested on the zeal of the king and on the zeal of the king alone. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, he says this, and he, prophesy, he says this, prophesying during the time of King Josiah. He has many prophesy, prophecies during the time of King Josiah. I just picked this one. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." Elsewhere, you say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It says the people are trusting because the temple of the Lord has been rebuilt. It's not going to help you if you continue in this immorality. He said this during the time of King Josiah. They would worship God on one day and on the next day they'd worship the Queen of Heaven. They would worship in the temple on Saturday and then they would go home up to their rooftop and bow down to the moon and the stars. Their, their hearts were far from Him. They would renounce their sins on Sunday and resume their sin on Monday. And even though the land and its laws and its leaders followed the Lord, it was not enough to deliver them. The people simply did not fear God. If they had... I mean, if Scripture teaches us anything, if under Josiah the people had repented and put their trust in the Lord, they would not have been carried away. But they refused. They worshipped God and worshipped idols. They sinned in secret. They denied Him. And so He denied them and handed them over to His enemies. If we will have peace in our nation, it is only going to come when the hearts of your co-workers and your family members and your neighbors and your employers and your employees and those who walk the streets alongside of you and fill the grocery store aisles when you go until they fear the Lord there can be no lasting peace it is the prayers and the preaching and the obedience of God's people and those things alone that will move God to pour out his spirit on a people just like he did in Hezekiah's day Over and over in his day, you read, the people willingly brought their offerings. The people were the ones who tore down the idols and the altars. The people were the ones who consecrated themselves. In Josiah's day, he made them. In Hezekiah's day, they came willingly because his people will be made willing on the day of his power. And in the end, not only were they not overtaken, but their enemies were so defeated it would be another 60 years before they could threaten the people of God again. And unless the hearts of the people are changed, 
there can be no lasting deliverance, only a delaying of judgment. It was the sin of the people, you remember, that defiled the world before the flood. It was the sin of the people that defiled Canaan before the Israelite invasion. It was the sin of the Israelites that defiled the northern kingdom. And it was the sin of the people under King Manasseh that defiled Judah and caused them to be vomited out of the land. Because it is the sins of the people that defile a nation. It's on account of sin of the people that a society is corrupt. It's on account of the sin of the people that a nation has bad leadership. It's on account of the sin of the people that our economy falters or our legal system fails. And unless that is dealt with, there will be no deliverance, only a delay of judgment. So if you want to have peace in the land, you want your children to have a safe place to worship, and you want to see the kingdom of God flourish, then this is what you ought to do. Concern yourself with preaching the gospel, obeying the scriptures, and praying earnestly, even without ceasing for the nation. And that is what will stir up God to turn his wrath away and speak with mercy on a people. Just imagine what happens. What is going to have a greater effect? Convincing a judge that he is wrong or converting a judge to Christ so that now his greatest concern is the truth. This is why Paul, when he's before Festus and Felix and Agrippa and all of the, all of the officials that he's before, he doesn't come before them and say, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need, this is wrong. He comes before them and he says, you need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because he knows if they believe, things will begin to take care of themselves. They'll concern themselves with the truth. They'll concern themselves with justice because they'll recognize they're under a higher authority. And it will do more for a people to have believers in leadership than anything else. Not only that, we raise our family and our children in such a way and preach to others so that they grow up to become godly judges and godly politicians and godly voters. That's the way a, a society's changed. And like I said, there's, there's, there's benefit in calling the nations to adhere to the laws that they themselves have put in place. It delays, it gives the church more time to do the work of the church, but we can't let our focus only be there because no deliverance will come otherwise. You say, has this ever happened before? Has this ever happened in the past? It has. It happened very early in the Roman Empire. You know why the Roman Empire became Christian? It wasn't because of Constantine. Most of the empire, uh, especially the nobility and the army, were already believers. Do you know why? Because they had spent, in the Roman Empire, 300 years in darkness, and eventually they saw the light of the world in the church, and they realized that the church's ways were better. Her people weren't hopeless. Her people were courageous and were honest and were loyal. And after having spent centuries with cowardly, dishonest, treacherous profligates, they began to realize maybe Christ's way is better. And the testimony in the light of the church was stronger in those days than the forces pulling society into darkness. And the fear of the Lord fell on the Roman Empire because of the faithfulness of the church to those simple things. So that when the Roman Empire officially became Christian in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, but Asia Minor, 80% of the population was worshiping the Lord. Eight out of every ten people. And this was when a time when it was costly to be a Christian, eight out of every ten people, because of the earnest prayers and the obedience and the faithful preaching of the church. Now, is this a guarantee? Is this a guarantee? Will, if we live this way, will it certainly happen? If we live this way, will God move in revival? I do think it is a guarantee. But 
it may not happen in your lifetime. Because in the Roman era, it took 300 years. But I can guarantee if these things no neglect, go neglected and we don't care about them and we don't make them the focal point, nothing is going to change at all. If revival will come, it must begin in the hearts of God's people. And when we aim to live this way, pleasing God in every area of life, fully committed to Him, really one of two things are going to happen. And one of only two things are going to happen. Either God is going to pour out His Spirit, like we saw in Hezekiah's time. No one was looking for revival in Hezekiah's day. They said, we're going to seek the Lord. And God came. They set about being as faithful as they could. And then all of a sudden, there was the Lord in the heart of the nation with one accord turned back to God. This will happen eventually. This might take a very long time or the return of Christ. But it will happen eventually. But if it doesn't in your lifetime, then you have to understand the nations will turn against God's people all the more. Because the more a people become like Christ and the more people seek to be faithful and preach and pray, the more it invites the anger of a godless people. John 3, 18, 19, 20. That's worth a whole sermon on its own. But it is our faithfulness, even faithful suffering, that brings a change. And so if you're a Christian, you have to decide, are you willing to pay the price? Because there isn't any alternative. You wonder, maybe this is just too concerned with the nations for, for my, my liking. It's a spiritual kingdom. We need to worry about spiritual things. We don't, we don't need to worry so much about the nation of Canada I would say it's not more concerned than Paul was when he said, if possible, I would that I could be damned if it meant that my kinsmen, according to the flesh, could be saved. Ready to be condemned if it meant he could see his nation saved. And if you're a Christian, you have to understand the only thing that will change anything it is the same thing that invites immense difficulty and trial and worldly loss and suffering. But there is no other way. And so you must be faithful. Entrust yourselves to a faithful Creator to live for Him. And whether He pours out the Spirit on the world in revival or we suffer terribly and then He pours it out on our grandchildren, or even if He returns, either way, we must be undivided in our devotion to Him because there is no other way. And I don't know about you, I find this a comforting thing because I find it comforting to know that there is a better way to live in this world than, than just kind of get washed along to and fro from side to side. That there is, there is a way to live that brings God into the battle and onto your side. There is a way to live that has a hope of changing things that you really want to see changed. And even if they don't, that you can trust the Lord with them. There's a better way that we can live. And so, church, preach and proclaim the gospel. Pray without ceasing and obey the voice of God in His Word, seeking to example and proclaim Christ to your family, to your, to your suburb, to your city, to your country, to the ends of the earth. You make that your mission. God will take care of the rest. You think of the apostles. It says they turned the world upside down. How did they do it? By praying, by preaching, and by obeying the Word of God. Never is a Christian as effective in their world where God has placed them that when they are wholeheartedly seeking to practice these things. This doesn't mean we neglect everything else, but this is where our priorities must be. And the reason I preach this is not to rebuke anybody but just to help us to remember where our priorities must be. All of these other things are useful. You know what I'm talking about when I say these other things. They're useful. 
They have their benefit, but they are not ultimate, and they will not deliver a nation in the end. So let's put our priorities where they have to be and our concerns where they must be for the glory of God and for the good of His people. Proverbs and with reading this passage from Proverbs. Twenty nine sixteen. Or sorry, twenty nine twenty six. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. This verse captures what we see in Hezekiah and Josiah's day. Justice, deliverance, and hope comes from the Lord. I want us to keep that in mind in the coming days so that we do not lose focus of where our attention has to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word that is a sure and steady guide. Thank You for Your Spirit that leads us. Thank You that You have anchored our souls through the Gospel. Thank You that You have taught us a better way to live, a hopeful way to live that no matter what happens in the world, we have a sure foundation in Christ and we do pray for the leaders of this nation that they would fear You. That they would reverence You. And that they would let the church be the church. That our future would be freer to do these things. To proclaim the gospel freely and clearly. To meet together to worship unobstructed. We bring these things before You, Lord, because You are able to do above and beyond anything we could ever hope or dream or imagine. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to have our focus on the right places, Lord, on raising our children in godly ways so that they grow up to be godly citizens, godly voters, that we would proclaim the gospel so that people would see what is righteous and that they would love righteousness more than their own comforts, and that they would carry that with them into their occupations into the authorities You've given them, into their judgments and rulings, into their elections. Lord, we know that if anything will change and if any deliverance will come, it will come by repentance and faith of a nation seeing their sin and turning from it. And so, Lord, we ask You that You would graciously Help us to be faithful to these things. And Lord, pour out Your Spirit. And I, I pray for anyone who has, who has neglected these things over the last few years, that You would forgive them and that they would be encouraged to redouble their effort in prayer and evangelism. I pray for those who have grown cold and have been coasting downriver that, Lord, they would wake up and see what is at the other end so that they would strive mightily to enter the kingdom. That none of us would coast, but that we would be diligent to persevere. Lord, I pray that You would give the church through everything that's happening more time to preach and pray so that we would have more light to work and that darkness would be delayed because no one can work when it's dark. Lord, I pray that You would give Your people courage and wisdom and faith. The kind of faith that 
submits to you, that loves you, and that strives, Lord, for things rightly. Thank you for your great comfort and for the great hope we have in Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.